Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the big dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I am joined today with three of my great mates. First and foremost, we have Steve the Movie Man. Oh, is that me? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Hi. He's <laughs> officially got a title. I do. I'm so proud of myself. It's a one-time thing. Oh. <laughs> uh, next, we have a man that hails from Oxnard. He is my oldest friend and a very cool guy. Say hello, Jonathan. Hello. <laughs> hello there. Uh, last but not least, from the world-renowned podcast Spoilers... Josh, what do you have to say for yourself? Hello, this is uh, the other Josh, I guess, that's on this podcast <laughs> yeah. sometimes. Um, so I'm not that Josh. This is this Josh. Um, hello, I'm fr- I'm in spoilers. I have a life outside of that as well, but we don't need to talk about that, I guess. Um, I'm often a Christ-like character in podcasts, though. So. <laughs> that's true. So we've got the other Josh and our host, John Hammond. <laughs> Josh here is the one that has inspired who is the Jesus character, as you may remember, Steve. Right. I know it's been a while since we've done that. <laughs> not a lot of movies we do have a Jesus character, which is why it's not always on the plate. wasn't supposed to be as tongue-in-cheek as you guys do it, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty accurate that a lot of movies do have what you call a Christ-like character. I mean, it's, it's a thing, right? It is. It's a literary thing as well. It's especially easy when you do like Christmas stories and stuff that have Jesus in them. (laughs) None come to mind, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm sure they exist. So we're here today to talk about The Flintstones, the 1994 film directed by Brian Levant. And we are prepared to have a gay old time. But on that topic, I signed up for. (laughs) I have a question for you, Josh. Yeah. What's the gayest old time you've ever had? I thought our opening question was about cartoons. <laughs> what is this? Well, this one time in San Francisco. Oh, wait. <laughs> no, that's a joke question. All right. On a serious note, yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is based on an old 60s cartoon. <laughs> early to si- late 60s, I guess. I don't really know the timeline. But, uh, Josh, did you grow up on this cartoon? If not, like, what cartoons did you like as a kid in the 90s? We're all about the same age. We're millennials in our 30s, so. Obviously, this originally aired far before any of our times, but it was heavily in syndication when I was growing up and on my local or regional channels, whatever they were. Same. So, yeah, I feel like I do have a lot of memories from this cartoon I didn't know I had, but were dredged up from watching this earlier today. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Obviously, I was on the Secret of the Ooze podcast, so that was one of the huge ones for me. But another thing that I just remember watching all the time were just random like Looney Tunes hours. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of lost now. I think there's like 40 years of people growing up on those Looney Tunes uh, hours and medleys or whatever they call them. And I don't know if those are airing anymore. So it's kind of sad. There is a new iteration of Looney Tunes that I watched briefly a couple years back. It's it's quite different, but I, I'm pretty sure Looney Tunes is, is still a thing. It uh, is streamed on Hulu, all the classic Looney Tunes episodes, uh, courtesy of Boomerang. So if you have Hulu, 
you can watch all those uh, originals. Okay. 40 years of people and kids were forced to watch that as an only option for cartoons on Saturday <sighs> mornings. And that's really lost in the culture, man. We're never going <laughs> to get that back. No. That was <laughs> a really fond memory, watching Looney Tunes at Grandma's house on Saturday mornings. It was exactly. awesome. Some people like Looney Tunes. I, I don't really like it. Like, I never found it funny is the problem. Or like Tom and Jerry. I didn't find that kind of slapstick funny. I liked X-Men. Like, that was my shit. That, it was almost like a treat to get to see X-Men. Like, I thought it was, like, above and beyond any other kid's cartoon at the time. And in a lot of ways, it was. I mean, Steve, I'm sure you were into X-Men, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge amount. I'm just, I don't know about Josh, just a few years, I think, older than you. You, uh, you two, maybe four, five, three, something like that. Anyway, so when I was really young, it was uh, G.I. Joe, Thundercats, Transformers, and Silverhawks. Silverhawks was amazing and no one remembers it. Um, but then, yeah, a little bit older, definitely the X-Men cartoon, Rocco's Modern Life, Ren and Stimpy. Oh, and then yeah. the, the stuff on MTV. I was just old enough to, to really appreciate Liquid TV and oddities like the Aeon Flux. The Max and the Head were both based on comics. So yeah. that was awesome. Um, Beavis and Butthead, absolutely a longtime favorite. So, yeah. I remember childhood, like, playground discussions. Who would win the Max versus Wolverine? Stuff right. like that. Yeah. It's such a strange – I mean, kids don't get it. It took me a long time to really understand what that comic was about, but it's kind of a strange comparison because the Max character is really just a homeless guy's, like, hallucination of himself. I had no idea. Yeah, it, <laughs> that whole story is basically about a homeless dude with a beautiful blonde caseworker, and he spends most of his time fantasizing about the two of them living in a jungle world where she's a princess and he's a hero that's constantly saving her from danger. With giant teeth. With giant teeth, yeah, which is why a lot of it looks so weird because the whole thing, well, outside of the occasional trip back to reality, the whole thing took place in the mind of this messed up homeless dude. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I don't mean to go off on too much of a tangent. Do you ever read New 52, like Mr. Freeze's new arc? Oh, no, I don't know that one. All right, so, you know, all right, everyone probably knows the story of Mr. Freeze. He's He's trying to like save his wife, right? Who is like frozen. It's it's very famously done in the Batman the Animated Series. I think that episode won an Emmy. Heart of Ice. Um, in the New Fifty Two, he's just schizophrenic and he's obsessed with this woman that he thinks is his wife. Oh, and his whole thing is like he's trying to save her, but she's actually in like no danger except from him. Right. It's a trip. Interesting. Anyway, don't mean to go on too much of a tangent. Batman the Animated Series, that's another that good was another one. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a great <laughs> I one. I love and everything you guys have said, by the way. I hope right? we're not getting territorial with this. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan. Only I might like that. Aside from Looney Tunes, what else you got? Well, I really uh, didn't do a lot of like Saturday morning, Sunday morning cartoons. I was more of like uh, outside kid. So when I watched cartoons, it was typically like uh, evening Nickelodeon type stuff. So a lot of like, hey, Arnold, ah, real monsters, you know, things like that. But the one that does stick out a lot for me was uh, Darkwing Duck, man. I used to watch that, that a was lot sick. when I was yeah. a kid. Gargoyles. <laughs> Um, you know, Gargoyles was fun. That was always a good one. That show was fucking dope. It's coming back, actually, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I think wow. Disney Plus is doing a Gargoyle show or some other stream. It might be. I don't know who it is, but it's yeah, coming there's back. There's some stuff on the Netflix boils. about Gargoyles and stuff. Yeah, I, but I remember, and I'm not trying to embarrass you here. I remember me and you used to watch the shit out of Pokemon. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Me and Jonathan were total Pokeheads, man. We fucking... We were mass consumers of Pokemon, the games. Binders full of cards. 
and, yep. and card pages in there to keep them in good shape, you know. Uh, Jonathan also collected the Garbage Pail Kids, which was my first introduction yes. to Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> I still have them. I still have a shitload of Garbage Pail Kids cards. Yeah, Can I give too. a quick shout out to uh, Doug, as in Doug Funny, the original beta? Like, he's kind of oh, like wow. and Patty Michael Sarah before Michael Sarah, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Totally. And his girlfriend, Patty Mayonnaise. I mean, it was like his crush. He never really had the balls to, to do anything about it. But <laughs> yeah, neither did I. So, Very I relatable. <laughs> yeah, oh. absolutely. You know, How I, sick was his dog, though, dude? He always came in clutch. Poor chop. <laughs> <laughs> he bailed Doug out of so much shit all the time. I he know. got him laid, Pork too. Chop was like that generation's lassie. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to get laid when you wear your underwear on the outside of your pants and a fucking belt on your head. <laughs> You'd think someone would have said a something. specific memory I have right. from that show is him at the girl's slumber party doing, like, the limbo with them. Like, that dude was a baller. Pork chop. Right. Dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Doug couldn't get any because pork chop was stealing all his girls, man. <laughs> Remember the band that was on there? The, the Beats? Beat? Yeah. The Beats. Killer Tofu? <laughs> Oh my they god. They had a few songs. They had sh- uh, Shout Your Lungs Out, Killer Tofu, and I Need Mo Allowance. They actually, someone wrote these songs. Where were you in your life when you realized it was like the Beatles? Kind of. Right? I was here like right my now. 9-11 when <laughs> yeah. I realized that. I was this year's old. <laughs> Dude, so many things like about cartoons you don't realize until years after you were watching them that like, wait, that was a reference or that was really a grown up joke that I didn't get. In fact, I caught a few of them watching yeah. this movie. Like I didn't really, 94, I didn't know what that joke meant, but I caught it this time. Just like with the Looney Tunes, man, that shit is so bad. If you watch that right. now as a grown adult, and you're like, oh, man, I can't believe this stuff passed to get on TV. <laughs> like it would not fly today. I think Looney Tunes all. was originally for adults, right? Right. Yeah. When like I, I mean, you guys were talking about the 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 band and Doug. It made me think of it. There's a moment in not really related, sort of related. There's a moment in the in Fargo, the movie Fargo, where William H Macy character goes into his son's room to have a conversation after his mother's been quote unquote kidnapped. And on the wall in the kids' room, one of the posters he's got up is for like a hotshot professional accordion player. And and that movie came out. I think it was 13 or 14, and I didn't notice the poster. But years later, watching, and I just found that hilarious. That one little detail. The Cohen stuck in there is like one of this kid's favorite musical artists is just this weird looking accordion player. Weird Al? <laughs> it wasn't Weird Al. It was some dude like in Bavarian gear or something with a huge accordion. It, was, it wasn't meant to be a parody act. It was like this dude's just like an accordion rock musician. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and he's not a real person as far as I'm aware, but. Uh. One of the things that I wonder about for people our age, and you guys are the perfect test audience for this question, is. Uh, do you guys like Spongebob or did you guys ever like that? I never liked it. I was always a I little didn't. bit too old for it and I thought it was like a poor man's version of other cartoons. I always enjoyed that show. I'll still watch it if it's on TV. Do your kids watch it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I think I still have like bed sheets at the house from from when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I, and as an adult and a parent now, I think that um, there's a lot of good lessons that that show actually teaches in spite of it's just stupid comedy but um i mean it it, it instills a lot of good messages i think you don't too. like it because of jealousy Corey. because it's it's the cartoon <laughs> that like is still around and has remained in the zeitgeist but 
you should like it. It really is like a combo between like Ren and Stimpy, some of the weird gross out stuff they do, and like uh, Rocco's <laughs> Modern Life. You could like, I think it is kind of all the best parts of the early '90s cartoons kind of mashed together or something. I'm kind of with you, Cor. I, I didn't dislike. I don't have any negative feelings about it, but I was already so old when it went on the air; it just wasn't even on my radar. The the one of the few cartoons I can remember seeing and thinking this is still kind of fun at that age was uh, Samurai Jack, though. I thought that one was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to Josh's point, you're probably right. It probably is like jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> I I liked Ren and Stimpy a lot when it aired. Oh, and then yeah. I liked Rocco's Modern Life when it aired. Yeah. And it seemed like they it started with Ren and Stimpy, but they started to get more and more watered down. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like the gross out stuff. And then it landed on SpongeBob, which I think is like the safest. I hate to go on another side note, but did you watch the Rocco's movie? The one that came out last year? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, there's a movie from last year? Yeah. Yeah. It's only like 40 minutes or 45 minutes or something. It's pretty good. It's on Netflix, I think. I'm going to watch it. What what did you think? I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. It it totally brought me back. (laughs) Yeah. For sure. The premise is like they, Rocco's been stuck in like space (laughs) and then he comes back in modern times and it's like, not the 90s anymore, so it's all modern stuff. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Pretty sweet. But we're not here to talk about cartoons. We're here to talk about a movie based yeah. on a cartoon. <laughs> Steve, yeah. I, I have a, a question that you'll probably be hearing me ask from now on. How the hell was this movie made? Oh, my God. Well, you know, you may be unsurprised to find out that the first real serious attempt to get this movie made was actually instigated by a producer named Joel Silver, who's an infamous name. He's responsible for the spider that ended up in Wild Wild West and almost a spider that ended up in a Superman movie. Yeah. Um, That guy loves giant spiders. He does. His name gets attached to a lot of movies I'm sure he wishes he hadn't participated in, Uh, although this one was hugely successful, so probably not this one. Um, He... Got together um, in 1985 um, with a screenwriter whose full resume I had to look up because I knew he was responsible for stuff. He didn't remember everything. He got together with this guy named Steven D'Souza. D'Souza's resume is spastic. This guy has been involved with some really good stuff and also some really terrible stuff. He, he wrote um, a movie called 48 Hours uh, from 82. It was actually a good one. He also wrote Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger and a really stupid Whoopi Goldberg movie called Jumping Jack Flash, then The Running Man, and oddly enough, the first two Die Hard movies. The second one's not great, but he wrote the first one. He also wrote Hudson Hawk with, uh, what's his name? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, thank you. Beverly Hills Cop 3, but then went on to uh, the Street Fighter movie, which he also directed, uh, which is where I remembered his name from. Uh, He wrote Judge Dredd um, and some other terrible stuff anyway. D'Souza's script apparently was sort of adapt, like he took the idea mostly from the Grapes of Wrath, the Depression era novel. And the idea behind his story was supposed to be that Barney and Fred's town was being hit by such an awful depression that they had to set out across basically Pangea to try to find more prosperous land elsewhere. And uh, it was going to, right? It was going to be like poignant and intellectual and sappy and... But also sounds like maybe a road trip movie. Yeah, a little bit. And they had, they'd originally attached Richard Donner to direct it. And Donner saw the script and was like, I don't like it. It's too big. Like, right? the it beauty of big. this movie is that... I mean, Richard Donner did some big movies. But right? this movie feels like it could be an episode of the Flintstones. It doesn't need to like change right. everything, you know? 
No, absolutely. But over the course of a handful of years from there, no, no shit. They had something like 35 separate writers Damn. attached yeah. to this. I took a note. 31. Jeez. 31. And, uh, right. Um, and, and I, some of them got nominated for like Razzie awards and stuff, but, uh, not everyone got credited. There were multiple different choices for Fred, including John Goodman. And apparently at one point, Danny DeVito, when Steven Spielberg ended up getting attached to the film, he was the one, I guess, that wanted John Goodman. They'd worked together on a movie called Always, and uh, Spielberg really wanted Goodman to have the part. I heard rumors for years that this version of the film wouldn't have gotten made if Goodman hadn't signed on, like his participation was contingent. He said years later in an episode of Inside the Actors Studio that he really did not want to be associated with Yabba Dabba Doo for the rest of his career and almost didn't take the part. Um, but it was probably good casting. I mean, he's he's a, like a great actor. I I did not respect him as a kid. <laughs> right. I thought he was kind of like silly because of this movie. So I can see his point there. I can see why people would have thought he'd just be associated with this movie. But he went on to do great things. I mean. Another bowling movie four years later. Right. <laughs> Good point. Big Lebowski. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody else could have played that role better, though. No, I agree. I really don't. And side note, the Danny DeVito casting was actually for Barney, and he felt his character was too dark. And so that's why uh, he suggested oh, uh, Rick Moranis personally, and uh, because it had to be somebody that was under 5'6". <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, you know, you see him stand next to each other in the cartoon. You got the little guy. Well, Steve said when Steven Spielberg was attached to this film and... His name is the first one you see in this film. Steven it's Spielberg. Present, it's presented by him, um, which I feel like if it's presented by a director, he should like have a cameo and be like, hey, I vouch for this movie. But all right. it does, like, could you explain what his role actually physically is? Like, what does that mean? In this case, he was basically an executive producer and an executive producer's got some leeway up to a point anyway to decide how how much they want to really be involved on a day-to-day basis. Their primary role is really just to ensure that the production happens at all. They secure most or all of the funding. Yeah, they handle the money a lot. Yeah, they're responsible for getting or at least hiring the people that are going to get the facilities booked. And basically, it's almost like being the president. Like, you're not necessarily doing everything yourself, but anything you're not doing yourself, you have to make sure you've hired someone who's going to handle it. And then you've got various levels of involvement day to day with production. In some cases, an executive producer wants to be on set every single day, but only as an observer. In other cases, they'll be there every single day and will constantly be meddling with shit. That's caused some films to end up better, but many others to end up way worse. There are infinite stories from Hollywood about producers meddling with shit to the point that it ruined it. Um, in other cases, and I think it was probably mostly the case here, the person who got the production together has so much faith in the cast and crew they've put together that they may not be completely absentee, but I would imagine Spielberg was not there every day. He can mostly just have meetings and maybe visit once every couple of weeks and otherwise kind of let the crew do what they're doing. But that's also why you see credits in movies for just regular producers and associate producers those are often the people that are responsible for being there every day just to watch what's going on and report back to the executive producer. Sounds like it was such a star-studded cast that they wanted like a big producer name yeah. attached to it just to be like, oh, okay, this is really going to be good. This is going to be a good movie. And I feel like Steven Spielberg's like Universal's like Golden Boy. Yeah. At least at this time, right. 90, 80s and yeah, 90s. Yeah, definitely. In that case, though, Steven Spielberg comes on set and 
he tells John Goodman to do one thing and uh the director tells a tells him to do another like who ultimately has the power like on Brian Levant is like you know what I mean like that's always fascinated me oh yeah and it's very political and that has caused not only has it caused arguments it's caused directors to walk off sets it's caused people to quit there have been instances where production's been halted for days or weeks because an argument like that couldn't be settled on paper the executive producer is supposed to have the ultimate authority in that situation but some directors you know just aren't willing to accept that or they felt they were promised otherwise in advance and it can leave the talent in a very difficult position, especially if they end up siding with one of those two people. Yeah. Classic yeah. case of the big dick swinging contest. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Mine's we see a lot of that at yours. Disney. <laughs> right? And it's also part of why guys like Spielberg, when they're able to go on and create their own studios, because then not always, but a huge percentage of the time he's producing the stuff he directs. So there's never going to be that conflict. It's like he's he's ultimately in charge of all of it. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, the movie itself and what goes down. Josh, why don't you take it over? Why don't you tell us what happens after we get the uh, Steven Spielrock presents? <laughs> We're introduced to someone. We're introduced to someone, or does this go right into like the theme song? Well, just before the theme song, we see um, Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> what a weird career. <laughs> Mr. Evil Man. <laughs> right. He basically comes up on screen and he announces himself as the villain. He looks at the camera and he says, I'm going to be the bad guy of this movie, goddammit. <laughs> Look at those pathetic worms burrowing their lives away. Do you know why I'm up here and they're down there, Miss Stone? Because you lied on your resume? No. Because I have vision. And right now, I have a vision of you and me dripping with coconut oil on a beach in Rocapulco with Mr. Slate's fortune to keep us company. Glad we see eye to eye. <laughs> and somewhere down there is the ignorant stooge who will make all my schemes come true. <laughs> come hell or high water. No, he's like up to some schemes there. He's like, ah, my little fucking mill or whatever the fuck he's running. He's like, I'm gonna take someone out of this and I'm gonna frame him for something. This is going to be the plot. We need a patsy. Okay. <laughs> this is like the first alarm point for me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, and for me, this is like, I did not get this movie. I was 11 in 94. Like, there was part of this plot I didn't understand. Like, I basically got that Fred was being taken advantage of. But I rewatched it yesterday for this. And I'm like, man, this is already kind of like, we're, we're going to basically get an executive and frame him for our embezzlement. It's pretty advanced as a plot for a movie based based for kids. It, it's one of the first moments where it occurred to me throughout the movie, this movie was really made more for people who were adults who'd watched this cartoon in the 60s than it really yeah. was for the kids, you know? There was, I mean, we've talked about it a lot in this podcast, but there was a lot of, like, um, bring back old shows as a movie in the 90s, yeah. wasn't there? <laughs> Right. They got, you know, the Adams family and the Brady Bunch and But I think that this underlines Oh, absolutely. And I think it underlines an issue we're still facing today because I mean you think about the comic book movies, right? You got people our age, roughly our age, and like I grew up reading these comics in the late eighties and the early to mid nineties, and what I really want is a movie representation of that. The truth of the matter is kids ten and <laughs> kids are adults now, but people ten and fifteen years younger than I am grew up reading a completely different era's worth of those comics, and they're not necessarily interested in what I liked from 1993. 
So, you know, does, does the studio make a Marvel movie for me or does it make it for them? And the truth is it's going to be for them because more of them are going to see the movie. But, you know. You for know. sure. I, th- I think that I like misremembered the beginning of this movie because the theme song and like John Goodman entering the movie is just so memorable. Why don't you tell us about that bit then? Just the first thing that flashes in my mind is I think Steven Spielberg, what's the next thing? Like, I don't give a crap about the villain. It's like, it's freaking John Goodman sliding and surfing down a brontosaurus, (laughs) being as cartoony and campy as possible, landing in his car, using his feet, because, you know, the car runs from Fred's own feet, and like, it's so literal to the cartoon and there's like so much joy that comes across and is acting right off the bat. I seriously completely forgot that there's anything before that. The movie really starts with John Goodman. They had to load him into a a harness attached to a crane and actually do that sequence in reverse and then play it backwards (laughs) for the production to make it look like he was landing in the car that way. He's a big man. He is. Can you imagine dragging around a guy that size on a on a crane rig in reverse and then telling him, "All right, John, you're 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 now you're you're landing in the car, but backwards, and now you're sliding down the front of his horse tail, but backwards, and now you've got to yell the abba dabba doo. Come on, he's like a six foot four giant." I love it. We get a lot of like rock puns in this movie. I think we need to like get that out of the way. I don't remember if it's here or later or both. It might be both. He goes to a drive-in, much like in the original intro. Do you guys know the movie he goes to see? Well, at the end, it says coming soon, Tar Wars. Oh, okay. But it's not actually what they're playing. I see. Okay. They're watching their own movie. (laughs) Right? They're watching themselves. Watching himself. (laughs) However that works. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like the end of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's like a recreation of the events, maybe. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, there's Tar Wars. Did uh, they go to Rock Donald's? There's Rock Donald's. <laughs> yeah. We talked about Steven Spiel Rock. The, the band uh, that's the B-52s are actually the BC-52s <laughs> in this movie. BC-52s. Yeah. Everyone's last name is a rock thing. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, everything is. Like uh, uh, Vanderslate. When they go to the drive-in, the movie's presented by Universal. Yes. (laughs) They even managed to fit that pun into the creation of the wheel with the Firestone joke that's pretty early on. Right? Yeah. Man, I I, because we're going to talk about it in a second, I thought I'd make mentions. I thought this was interesting. The the set for the town of Bedrock took took them two months to build, even with a huge crew. The film's budget was $45 million. 10% of it went to just building Bedrock. And uh, during the... McDonald's had a huge promotional tie-in with the movie, which yeah. is part of why they were featured. But in addition to that, they were... I don't know why, but they had a tie-in with MTV. And MTV, I, I don't know if it was Spring Break or something else, but they did like three days worth of some kind of event broadcasting from the Bedrock set. <laughs> make good use of it. I mean... They built this fucking town, and man. It's like Hobbit Town. Yeah, it is. It's fucking amazing. Like, they built this (laughs) as much shit as they built. The props. Part of it was built up near Vasquez Rocks, and for something like a year after the movie had filmed, they would actually let people go take a tour of it. And then it eventually got torn down, which I find really disappointing. Okay. So, I want to talk about that. Because in the beginning, when we see after Fred gets off work and he's driving around with Barney... I know Steve noticed this. Right. When they're driving, they pass Vasquez Rocks like yeah. 12 times in the background. Right. And so 
I'm trying to figure out here, like, how much of that is really behind them. So I guess some of it was. Some of it really was. From what I understand, uh, the larger portion of the set was built on backlot, but in areas where they wanted a lot of background to be visible, that was the part they filmed up in Vasquez. So, yeah. Gotcha. So we get to see Fred and Barney, and they're best buddies. We see that right away. Um, but Jonathan, Fred has... Fred has done a big favor for Barney, which we get to see unfold here. Absolutely. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us about that? So at this point, they're in the car on the way home after work. And it starts off with Barney thanking Fred and um, for giving him money to adopt this kid because they, they wouldn't have been able to afford it without him. You know, they're pretty, uh, uh, got a pretty low paying job. But at this point, Fred's like doing this whole macho man thing, you know, like, don't worry about it. Don't say anything to me. You know, I don't, I don't we don't need to tell my wife. She doesn't need to know because I can make all the decisions myself. I mean, uh, he's the king of their castle. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, he, he, he kind of portrays himself to be that manly man kind of guy uh and then you he gets home and you know who really is the boss at that point and it's but my not only reward will be your happiness i don't need to go blabbing my good deeds all around you're afraid to tell wilma aren't you afraid now let's get this straight rubble i don't need permission from my wife to make a decision in my cave I reign supreme. Supreme. I won't tell her, Fred. Thanks, pal. I will just say, without this early scene of a truly selfless act from Fred Flintstone, he's a huge dick the rest of the movie. So you really <laughs> need this like gem here at the beginning. That's a very good point, actually. Without that, he would have just been a total piece of shit the whole time. <laughs> until the end. I think it helps helps in a sense that they they underline the whole time that he's he's really that dumb like and you end up finding out later on he scored lower than anyone else on that test and you know i i think for him at least initially because he comes around he didn't even really realize that this is bad behavior he's just like he's this dumb guy and he's all of a sudden he's got all this money and he's an executive and he's just it's just like uh, this is the way i'm supposed to act now you know like, I didn't even see him being malicious so much as he's just an idiot who got lucky. Yeah, Fred Flintstone apologist yeah. over here. <laughs> I kind of uh, agree, though. Like, that huge right. scene where he makes him chase the dino to get the steak. Yeah. I don't... It I is like yours demeaning. Rare. It's that's demeaning, true. but he doesn't seem to be like, I hate Barney, and that's he, why I'm doing this. Yeah, I think he thinks it's funny. And, like, everyone else is like, that's a huge dick move. But I think Fred's just like, ah, oh, I'm just messing with my buddy. He's so dumb, he doesn't know. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, that was kind of like a, a plot twist to me, okay? Because, like, in the cartoons, Barney was always considered, like, he was always considered the dumb guy. He was pretty slow. But in this movie, he's really not. You know, he comes up with, like, all this information about, like, oh, I've got, you know, business plans and what do you know about uh, uh, supply and demand and all that kind of stuff. So he really is like the smarter guy. Yeah. And, is that and in true? the cartoons, they don't, they don't do that. They don't portray it that way. I was reading through some of the cartoon synopsises and one of the first three episodes, 
Barney surprises everyone by pulling out this helicopter that he made out of stone <laughs> tools. So what? I wonder if there is like an underlying thing that we didn't pick up as kids of Barney kind of being like secretly smart or something. I I you did some the, deep research, man. Right? I always got the impression that like Fred was genuinely dumb, but somehow more street smart where Bo- <laughs> Barney was like like a savant. Is like he doesn't yeah. understand 90% of anything, but then he can build this helicopter. Yeah, he's one of like two cavemen to get supply and demand, but he's not smart on the street at all. Tell me something, Mr. Vice President. What's a graduated inventory plan? Huh? How about supply and demand? Hey, Fred, what's two and two? Oh, man. Well, then look, I think that's a good segue. The, the caveman technology, level of caveman technology in this movie is really inconsistent, weird. I don't understand how it works. Like, they've got cameras. There's a part where Bam Bam, Bam, Bam gets set off by a camera flash. But, like, in the newspapers, Fred is drawn as his cartoon self. It's like, if you've got cameras, why don't you just take a picture of him? <laughs> they've got television sets. You know, I don't understand how Inconsistent cave TV, technology. In a Flintstones movie. Who would have thought? You know, but yeah, they're yeah. using steam power in the rock quarry, but right? yet they've got electricity for <laughs> yeah, TVs and things like that. Yeah, why are you still using dinosaur cranes if you've got television sets and cameras? Why? <laughs> Just fucking easy labor, man. Just enslave them while they're still around. Right. They couldn't write like they needed that news flash to happen, so they couldn't. Like it's been a trope for so long in TV, they had no idea how to write around that. They had right. introduced the technology. You know, Somebody just said, oh, fuck it. Right. And it occurs to me, I guess part of the core <laughs> plot here is that like the mechanization of the plant's going to put all the workers out, out of work. So maybe that's why they didn't start with it. But man. So what happens is Barney goes to adopt his son, Bam Bam. He's a little wild boy that was like raised by, I don't know. Uh, mastodons. Mastodons, that's yeah. right. <laughs> he was raised by mastodons. He's like completely insane. He's He's just running around causing chaos. He's a little like dirty boy, has crazy like long hair. And he also is basically Superman. Like he is insanely strong, like, you know, in the cartoon. And over a very short period of time, they kind of bring him in and they they make him their son and they they clean him up and he he eventually loves his parents. I hated Bam Bam as a kid, by the way. I thought he was so fucking annoying. Yeah. He's annoying in this movie too. (laughs) Is he adopted in the cartoon? I don't remember. I don't, I don't think they explain his backstory boy. in the cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Rubble, this is your little boy. <gasps> oh, Barney, isn't he precious? Precious? He'd have been better off with a monkey. Right. Does he have a name? Bam Bam. Is that uh, short for something? Bam Bam Bam. <laughs> You're going to have to take it slowly with this one. He doesn't speak yet. And he's a little skittish around humans. But then again, I guess I would be too if I had been raised by wild mastodons. <laughs> mastodons? Let's not nitpick a mammal's a mammal. Well, sounds to me like all he needs is a little loving. It wasn't cool to adopt kids in the 60s. No, no, definitely not. So they go, uh, they go bowling a little bit later on. We get to see the famous, like, 
Fred Flintstone bowling move. So the twinkle toes, right? Two notes about that real quick. Number one is an extension of the point I made a moment ago. They've got like indoor incandescent lighting in the bowling alley. And I don't understand what powers it, but, um, <laughs> then on t- <laughs> right. Then on top, the science the- is not going to hold up in this one. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right. A new scientist has appeared. But then on top of that, or there's a scene later in the movie where they've got like a, like a concert and dance number with the B-52s performing. That scene always felt like a tack on to me. They only shoved in there to flush out running time and feature the B-52s. And then I found out years after the fact that this bowling alley scene was actually the tack on scene, that it wasn't supposed to be in the movie and that the only reason it ended up being in there was specifically so so that they could show Fred doing the twinkle toes move. I see. Right. That was his signature move in the cartoon. It's awesome. It was. They did have a lot of stuff from the cartoon. Like they... They got like the intro down. They got the part where like Fred throws out the cat. Uh, you know, they got all the Dino stuff down. So yeah, they they really are making an effort to be like the cartoon. One interesting, real, really quick note about Dino. Um, Mel Blanc, had, who did a million cartoon voices, had done the voice of Dino in his uh, in the cartoon or the sounds for Dino in the cartoon. This movie was made five years after Mel Blanc died. But they went back to the old production archives and actually took audio recordings of his Dino sounds for the movie. So that's him. Damn. Right? <laughs> what do you guys think of the way Dino hmm. looks? I'm it, Considering it's 94, I'm not that bothered by it. Well, two things. Number one, it's 94. You got to be fair, 94 primitive technology. But number two, one of the big things that saves the CG in this movie for me is the fact that it's supposed to be based on a 60s era cartoon. So they were never really aiming for photorealism to begin with. It was always supposed to look like a 60s era cartoon. Hmm. And I think they kind of nailed it. In fact, the the saber-toothed cat that Fred throws out of his house, that was one of the first CG characters ever put in a movie that had hair on its body. And they had the right first. S- was it the first? Number one ever. Because I've heard conflicting rumors about that. I've heard people say it was definitely the first and others say no. They started working on this other thing f- before that. But I know that they they had to write special software in order to get the effect to come off. Damn, that's pretty cool. Like the, right. the algorithms it took to make every single hair on that saber tooth move as they they uh, threw uh, them out I the door. Okay. It was it was like unheard of at that time. It was unbelievable amount of information. I was actually pretty meh on Dino and the B fifty twos. I would have rather spent. Yeah. I would have rather spent more time with just John Goodman and getting into shenanigans i agree with you about the b-52s i felt like dino was in the movie just enough to be a featured character but the b-52 stuff i totally could have done without they but you know even... but the, the other thing though is like that's a, a totally in line with any other movie where like you have this executive who's like you know uh he's going into the exclusive restaurants now you gotta know somebody to get in there and they have a live band like that's like the same thing as like going to the the copacabana and in other movies or whatever yeah yeah, exactly you know so they had to have a band and and why not them who else if not them who else no i think you're absolutely right in fact one of the big points in the movie after he gets wealthy is they go to a restaurant called the cavern on the green which is a play on the tavern on the green which is a restaurant in new york like a nice restaurant in New York. Mm. So basically, the only real noteworthy thing that happens at the bowling alley is Barney uh, recites this big poem to Fred. Right. And he says, basically, I'm going to pay you back for uh, helping me out with my son. <laughs> I would like to propose a toast to not only a great bowler, but a great human being. And no offense to you guys. Hey. 
Since I was just a lad of ten, I've had the very bestest friend. He may be big, he may be loud, so you'll never lose him in a crowd. But for my friend, the special part is what's behind his ribs, his heart. <laughs> I owe my son to him, and now I stand before my peers and vow I'll pay him back someday, somehow. He makes a vow akin to the Night's Watch. He's like <laughs> selling his soul here, the bowling alley. <laughs> One little touch there that I hadn't noticed at the beginning when they were working in the quarry was that the opposing team of bowlers are Neanderthals. So, it, you know, it's supposed to be like when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, that brief window when they were both existing at the same time. I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where are the Demiosaurians or whatever they're called? Right. Where's Homo erectus, <laughs> damn it? <laughs> Not represented? What is this? Right. There's no airgaster? I mean, come on. We're missing a huge chunk of the evolutionary line here. <laughs> so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but she is in this movie, so I'm going to talk about it here. Fred comes home, and his mother-in-law is there, Elizabeth Taylor. It's her last film appearance. Last film appearance. Mm -hmm. She basically hates Fred because he's just like a, a working stiff instead of like a rich guy, I guess. And she wants more for her daughter. But I mean, like, what's she doing here? You know, like, what's... I, I agree what with you about, about that. <laughs> and yet at the same time, just based on the interaction between the three, three of them, aside from whether or not it was merited within the context of the film... It was actually my favorite scene in the entire movie in terms of the way it was acted out. There's like maybe a minute and a half, two minutes between John Goodman, Elizabeth Perkins, and Elizabeth Taylor, where it's just like the three of them are going at it. And it's like it was real acting. It was actual real acting. The three of them played off each other perfectly. And I was like, wow, that scene came off really, really well. I liked that. He robs your nest egg to bail out that little troll next door while my daughter has to wash her clothes in the river. I got half of mine. Oh, don't flatter yourself. That's it. Where's my club, Wilma? You just try it, fat son. Boy, if you was a man, I'd <laughs> knock you in the You two should be ashamed of yourselves. I've got my hands full just being ashamed of him. You got your hands full when you scratch your neck. Now stop oh. it, both of you. Steve, was it the scene where Elizabeth Taylor is like trying to seduce him after he becomes rich? No, because it was the one before that where he comes home from work and she's there and is all giving him shit because he's not successful. I thought, I, I mean, I couldn't, Elizabeth Taylor just annoyed me because she's playing an annoying <laughs> right. character. Me too. Right? But later in the movie, when she did, like, was trying to seduce John Goodman, that character was sold on me and I freaking loved it. And it cracked me up that she was just like that shallow. Like, she's as dumb as Fred, really. <laughs> right. And I think that's hilarious. It is. So I, I'm not like, I don't know everything in the world like Steve does, but yeah. I do know a so slight piece of information about the Elizabeth Taylor character for this movie. Let's and go. The story behind that is this was her first movie in 11 years and it ended up being her final movie. And the only reason that she ended up doing it was because all of the proceeds for opening night of the Flintstones, once it was released, uh, all the proceeds were donated to the Elizabeth Taylor Foundation. And that's how they oh, got wow. her to be oh, in okay. the what, movie to do it. What does she work with? Do you know? AIDS. I don't even, yeah, oh, okay. She was one of the first celebrities to really go big on, on an AIDS foundation in the early mid-80s when they were first discovering what it was. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So that that was the only reason that Elizabeth Taylor was even in this movie. Otherwise, it would, would have been. All right, else. I'm not talking shit about her anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, in, oh, that sounds life, so she's great. A good person. <laughs> but there's also like anecdotes about her just being like super coddled on set too. Like, oh, yeah. In I fact, think she's still like rich girl, but she's got like oh, but but AIDS, so I'm nice. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> it's all good. I think she's a product of her background, but to that point, um, there's scene toward the end where they had to have her tied up after the house was supposed to have been ransacked. When they were setting up to film the scene, she actually looked at the director and said, you know how many men have tried to get me in this position? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That'd be so scary. She was also like right? 70 years old at that time. Yeah, too. right? Like, no thanks. It's like, I would yeah, have been going can... straight to HR. <laughs> right. Can we rewind this set back to like 1965 when I would have been interested? <laughs> You can't say that in a workplace. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's where things really take off in the movie. So all right, Kyle McLaughlin, who's our bad guy, his name's Cliff Vandercave. He is kind of like running the business that Fred and Barney work at, which they just kind of do construction basically, but he runs the corporate side of it. He needs a patsy for this money embezzlement scheme he has going on. And He's going to figure out which one of the workers to set up as the guy that's embezzling the money so he can actually take the money. And the way he wants to do that is have an aptitude test. And whoever is the smartest, whoever gets the highest on the aptitude test, that's who he's going to frame. It doesn't really make sense, does it? No. Shouldn't it be the reverse? Yes. <laughs> I mean, he lucked out. He did. That the dumbest guy actually won through like cheating. But yeah, I mean, Barney... All right, so the whole thing is they just need someone to sign documents that won't read them. Barney would have read them. Yeah, or at least tried. That, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Right? Any thoughts, Josh? I just think everyone is so dumb in this movie that it's delicious. And, like, <laughs> even the... I think... Um, what are the two wives' names? Oh, my gosh. Betty and Wilma. Yeah, Betty and Wilma. They're, I think, the smartest and the most savvy overall and kind of, like, pushing everything behind the scenes but even them when it comes down to it are kind of petty and dumb as well yeah, wilma was the smarter of the two but she was willing to go along with fred's jackassery when they got rich like for way too long right right <laughs> and i just love that to me i see it as just humor a eh? but i also see it as just like it, it really is human nature i think this is who we are and we freaking know it so <laughs> <laughs> prehistoric man yeah this is us <laughs> yeah does anybody else recognize kyle mclaughlin in anything other than just being the mayor for portland <laughs> yes so <laughs> he has such a familiar so face but that's the only thing i could ever remember he's in a big dumb movie classic steve remembers showgirls oh yeah he's in showgirls he's also oh, in like a third yeah. of everything david lynch has ever made uh yes he was in twin peaks and a whole bunch of lynch's other movies he's been in a ton of words he was the lead in david lynch's production of dune the, the film um he's got a massive resume he has a punchable face and he often plays an <laughs> asshole yeah <laughs> got it he is the bad guy uh, the bad boyfriend in a movie i grew up on called don't Tell Her It's Me, which yeah. is an 80s romantic comedy, which was renamed to The Boyfriend School. <laughs> Stupid movie with Steve Gutenberg that I love. Um, anyway, yeah, he's kind of always like this slime ball. He's, I mean, he's perfect for it. Is yeah, he a such slime? a memorable face, just couldn't remember anything he's done. <laughs> is he the one that's in the very explicit scene in Showgirls as well? Yeah, he like definitely in the pool? does. 
yeah, getting that's splashed him. on. Yeah. Right? You mean the uh, fish sex scene? He's the famous f- for that scene, man. Right? It's the only instance of humans ever replicating the mating behavior of porpoises. <laughs> Good thing we got it on tape. Right? Thank God. Uh so what happens is Barney, who's doing good on the test, sees that Fred is doing bad on the aptitude test. He switches it over. Uh, he sees that as like his big opportunity to to pay him back. Yes. And he does he does the humble thing of not saying he paid him back. So Fred gets he wins. He gets the highest score because he had Barney's test and he gets promoted to uh vice president of Slate. And that's where kind of the movie the the main plot starts unfolding where Fred's now this corporate guy and he, he kind of slowly starts becoming a dickhead and kind of just like a rich snob. He's basically told to by Kyle McLaughlin, though. Vice President of Industrial Procurement. That's what it is. Hey, guys, guess what I am? <laughs> Listen, Bertie, let's get the pecking order straight here. I don't need any help from you. I'm Vice President of... Industrial procurement. How about that? Excuse me. Hey, guys! Guess what I am? Vice President of Industrial Procurement! Can I comment on Barney's plan here, though? Like, uh, he's selfless and returning a selfless act, and that's great, but... He should have just taken the VP job and paid Fred back the actual money. Yeah, exactly. Like paid him back. You should. Have, I mean, I would even go so far as to say maybe he pays Fred back with like an extra ten percent as a thank you. But I agree completely. Like, why would you not just take the job and then and then pay him back? Good point, man. Because then you wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> but Jonathan, so that's when, a good point. When Fred is VP, he gets a couple sweet uh-huh. perks. One of them is a new secretary. Why don't you tell us about her? So uh, one of the sweet perks is his new secretary, uh, Miss Stone. Um, Full name, please. Sharon Stone. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Who, uh, actually, she uh, Sharon Stone was supposed to play Sharon Stone <laughs> no in way. this movie. It's true. Uh, then it could have said Sharon Stone as herself. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Um, as her prehistoric self. <laughs> but, you know, Halle Berry was not a bad replacement. And yeah. I'm pretty sure she jump-started a lot of kids' puberty in this movie. <laughs> oh, you know, my gosh. Like, there was no reason for her to, like, have her assets hanging out in a kids' movie, you know? Um, Mr. Pinstone, I'd like you to know that I enjoy working long hours, late nights, even weekends. So feel free to use me however you see fit. That was probably the sweetest perk. And then uh, uh, he's also got a dictabird, you know, <laughs> uh, which was really cool that uh, Harvey Corman played the voice for the dictabird. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's mm-hmm. done so many amazing things. Anything Mel Brooks, which I'm a fan of pretty much any of that stuff. Uh, and then uh, uh, he was one of the leads on the Carol Burnett show, which is just classic, yeah. classic comedy. He also did the voice of a Flintstones character, Gazoo. Yes. Gazoo. Sure did. Wait, is Gazoo yeah, so it's kind of cool to see him thing? come back and, the alien? and play. Yeah. 
Is yeah. that was that was was that was Gazoo? Yeah, I hated that character. <laughs> I liked him as a kid, but I can see why he's stupid. Yeah, actually, you know what? I I admit I like I was fine with him until I was like fourteen, and then all of a sudden, I don't know. Like, you're wearing on me, Gazoo, right? <laughs> um, there's a so there's a lot of stuff that happens. Fred starts getting rich, and uh, he has to fire Barney. But he does it in the worst possible way. He does it in public <laughs> at a surprise party. Josh, what do you think about that? Uh, he was supposed to do it during the weekday, and he pushed it off to the ride home, and he sloughs it off on the ride home, and then he sloughs it off during the whole party until it's like the pinnacle of the party, and it's like the gift-giving time. <laughs> and uh, it's exactly what I would do, probably, as a primitive caveman like that's exactly what i would do so So i'm sorry josh because i was about to say that like this is another example like barney not just taking the job and paying for it back of them not knowing how to be grown-ups it's just really weird that like he blurted he could have just at that rate you take the briefcase you wait till the party's over and you're like look you know the gift blah 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 but this is what happened today at work and i'm sorry and instead he's just like no i don't want your briefcase you're fired and he runs away (laughs) So one key event that actually happens right before that scene is um, we do find out that Miss Stone and and Mister Vanderclave are up to some shit, and uh, it actually they reveal that uh, Fred is just the the pawn in their uh, their scheme that yes. they have going on. They lucked out by getting the actual dumbest guy, like we mentioned before. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a part that sticks out to me, and that's when like they're going shopping, and um, like Bam Bam like breaks a bunch of stuff and then uh, Betty she goes to like pay for it on her credit card and the guy goes there's a problem with your credit card and she says what and he goes it's no damn good and he smashes it with a hammer how would he even know that they don't have a computer system to check their account with all you can do is record the number and try to bill the company later <laughs> they like, had phones man oh it's true I guess they do have weird phones yeah like, they had shell phones <laughs> oh my god that's good shell phones is good <laughs> Ugh. I don't know why that part has always stuck with me, though. That line. Right? No Dude, the guy just nailed that scene. That's why. Dude, I mean, it couldn't have been done any better. Excuse me, Mrs. Rubble. Yes? There seems to be a slight problem with your credit card. Really? And what would that be? It's no damn good. We see, like, more of, like, Fred getting rich and stuff. And I think the reason... Like, they spend a lot of time on this is just so they can showcase their sweet sets and props and costumes. Because, like, as far as, like, animatronic, like, uh, puppets, the sets, the costumes, like, everything that you see in the movie looks pretty fucking good. So, on that point, really, really quick, because I made a note of writing this down so I remember. Jim Henson's Creature Shop did all the physical creatures. They were only given 12 weeks to do 20 of them, which is a way compressed timeline for them. So they concentrated on the brontosaurus that was used in the opening of the film. It took almost the entire 12 weeks just to make that one brontosaurus. It weighed (laughs) 6,000 pounds. It was that big. And it was only on screen for like 28 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they made the lobster lawnmowers too. Oh, yeah, that's right. The lobster lawnmowers. Yeah. Yeah. I freaking love those. And the bird. Right? Dick the bird. It's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, look, the props look amazing. Yeah, they do. Especially considering that this is like a 1994 movie. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, it would have just been all CG. And it just goes to show you how good the uh, physical stuff still continues to look, even when it's still a bit dated. And 
I'm going to do it again, Corey. Here's the moment. 1997 special edition. Why'd you have to put CG in it? The physical props looked fine, you <laughs> motherfucker. All right, anyway. I agree, but like, especially with, is it Dino or Dino? What's his name? Dino. Dino. Dino, Dino the Dino. Gosh, Dino the Dino, of course. But I I feel like he really should have been a Henson creation. But the Sabretooth Tiger, I feel like they could have taken that risk because he needs that bit of like throwing him out and jumping through the window and it works. Yeah. Maybe that's kind of why Dino... It's almost like they're sh- trying to show off the CG eyes. I think a little in some your face. of Dino is physical, though. I think it's like there's parts it? where it's just like his head. Oh, you might be right. A lot of times with those creatures, they'll build the head for close-ups and then they'll do mm-hmm. the long shots in CJ. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. And, you know, 1994, whatever. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about the big fancy dinner they go to where the B-52s are playing. Uh I don't know. It stuck out to me, but one of the members wasn't in the band. The blonde woman. <laughs> she wasn't nowhere to be seen. Maybe she was busy that day. Um, but other than that, the B-52s are there. They have a big dance number. I mean, I don't know why, but they have a big dance number. It, Josh, anything stick out with you in that whole bit? I didn't like it that much. <laughs> um, I thought the end of the dinner was like a good payoff, but... Honestly, I don't know. I don't want to drag on it. Um, I thought it was really cool the next scene, though, with, like, oh, Barney's off taking some random job, just trying to get money, and he ends up being, like, the busboy. And we've talked about Fred becoming a rich, just jerk throughout the movie. And this is kind of uh, the breaking point, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And Barney does knock out Fred. But there is a a part (laughs) that I wanted. We haven't talked about Betty Rubble. Who's played by Rosie O'Donnell? Yeah, she has haven't. a really bad line, which I'm going to put in here. Me or some busboy? That busboy is your best friend. I I don't know. <laughs> I had to rewind it and watch it a couple times because I thought it was so bad. That busboy is your best friend. But just real quick, yeah, Betty Rubble, the cartoon to me was always a babe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's a well, good thing they cast such a hottie. Well, Rosie O'Donnell actually wasn't the first choice for Wilma. She, um, Betty. Or I'm sorry, Betty. Uh, she only got picked because she nailed the laugh. Yeah. She could exactly duplicate the laugh that from the original cartoon. That is Other pretty spot that, on. They would have never even casted her for that. I think she was nominated for a Razzie for this. She's the worst. But then again, if you're Rick Moranis at five foot five, like really, how hot is your wife going to be? You know, I mean, is it touching just for a second on on like dumb lines and jokes and stuff? This one really struck me because it had been probably 10 years since the last time I sat through this movie. I'd completely forgotten wine was even in it. There's there's a a, a moment in the first Zoolander that's been memed a hundred million times where they're showing him a scale model of a building. And he's like, Oh, what what is this for ants? John Goodman did the same joke in this movie in 1994. No one remembers it. They show him a model and he's like, if you build it this small, how are people supposed to be able to live in it? Right. Right. (laughs) It's because the joke doesn't land as well as it does in Zoolander. Like the delivery is like not quite right. Like it's built up in Zoolander. Like in Zoolander, he like, he like walks up to it and he inspects it and then he like smashes it all. And then <laughs> you're like, true. you're like, what's going on? Like, what's he going to say? And then, and then that's when he delivers like, what is this? A school for ants? So it just goes to show you a good enough delivery can make a recycled joke better. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I hate to bust your bubble, but if you build houses this small, who's going to live in them? 
things start going wrong for Fred. So Barney hates him. Wilma eventually <laughs> leaves him. Oh, that was the one other thing. I'm sorry. Real quick, last thing. I swear to God. <laughs> Barney's big thing, his big ask, when he's he's trying to get stuff for work and he mentions it multiple times and at one point he thinks Fred's going to help him and they get back to it at the very end. Barney wants ketchup packets for the work cafeteria. <laughs> They're prehistoric people. Fucking ketchup packets? That's the thing they came up for him? Uh, anyway, they could, they could have said Bronto sauce. <laughs> Seriously, anything. <laughs> Ugh. So, uh, yes, that's a very astute point, Steve. <laughs> we get to see Fred's low point because he inadvertently fires, like, basically all the laborers because they're going to start switching to automation. And uh, they decide they don't need the laborers anymore. They're going to have, like, a little automated system, like, industrial style. Uh, Wilma leaves him because he's being shitty. Uh, and Fred is just kind of, like, goes on the run for a little bit because... Uh, he's he's like wanted, I think, for the embezzlement. Like, yeah, Kyle McLaughlin turns him in as the guy that's embezzling all the money. <laughs> so he's kind of like running about. Um, Jonathan, why don't you tell us what happens next? Like, how? What is the plan to clear Fred's name? So there's there's a couple things that happen here. Is um, Fred gets to the office and decides that he's going to start reading those documents that he was signing for weeks and and. Um, Miss Stone kind of distracts him from wanting to read all of those. Um, he never ends up reading them, but he does find out on like a some pun of uh, CNN uh, yes. TV. He finds out that like he's been turned in as the the embezzler. So he goes down. I, I don't really know exactly what the point of this was, but he goes in disguise to go um, where all the. Uh, the laid off workers are like now homeless living in like a back alley cave somewhere. Dude, He's desperate. He just needed to warm his hands on some fire. He had nothing else. <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah. he just wanted to go to like the hobo fire, like the, the trash bin on fire. The I sword. mean, I don't know. He had a house like he has the house like <laughs> Wilma left. So. But like, I think the cops are looking for him. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, and he takes a shot of some Jack Daniels, prehistoric Jack Daniels. They could distill whiskey, but you know, not have ketchup packets yeah so. the grizzled guy he meets in that cave by the fire is an actor named jonathan winters he's been dead for a few years the guy's resume is stupidly massive he really was in like three dozen things including some famous movies but he also did occasional voices for cartoons including guest voices on the flintstones so everyone looks pretty good as far as costumes except that guy yeah because he's got that hat because he's wearing a baseball cap right? sideways right which makes no sense because <laughs> it was super, 1994 super hobo. <laughs> Is he like a rapper? I believe that's the same uh, way they would give uh, Alex Mack her hat in Alex Mack's <laughs> Adventures, whatever Alex that show Mack, was called. Alex Mack, where's a hat? Right. <laughs> sideways I mean, Clarissa, I think every kid in a 90s TV show had to have a sideways hat. <laughs> so, and I think while all this is going on, Wilma finds out that uh, Fred is also wanted, right? And then her plan is to go back to the office and steal the Dictabird because he remembers everything and sees everything that goes on in the office. So uh, getting him to uh, testify to clear Fred's name is the uh, master plan here. Hello? No, Mumsy, I don't want to go to school. The other boys make fun of me. Wake up! Ha! Ah, oh, this is Flintstone. What do I owe the honor of this break-in? 
I need your help, Mr. Bird. You hear everything that goes on in this office. Mm -hmm. You are the only one who can help clear my husband. My, my, what a delicious irony. Thank you for sharing it with me. Now, let me share something with you. Oh, now, Wilma, calm down. Maybe I can reason with him. They need an expert in bird law. There's only one man. Charlie. Oh, boy, that would have made this movie really good. I'm just the best damn bird lawyer you've ever seen. So, yeah, they... Uh, there's a mob they form. They're going to hang Fred, and then they're going to hang Barney because he says this whole thing is probably my fault. And <laughs> while they're about to get lynched, see, he is dumb. Streetwise, he's dumb. Barney, <laughs> Barney was selling snow cones, and the theme song on the snow cone truck. You know, usually like an ice cream truck has a song playing on the speaker. You know, it was actually the theme for the Jetsons. It was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice tie-in. Yeah. Do you guys notice the guy that showed up and said, "You got any lemon?" I remember the scene. I don't okay. know the oh, guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Just stuck out to me. Right. Anyway. Oh, I thought you were going to mention yeah, something about him. I'm like, I didn't notice anything about that guy. I was cracking up, shirt. though, when Barney's just like, yeah, we got some lemon. Look for it in the back. Some other lady is like, what about raspberry? And he's like, yep, you can get that, too. This sucks. We're about to get hung. He's like, he's like I can't break a 20. Yeah. Like, first of all, that's really not your concern right now. <laughs> Secondly, 20 of what? Shells. <laughs> That's the shell. Right. Oh, the shell. That's right. How do you break a tw- what's first of all, what is a twenty denomination shell? And secondly, how do you break it? Pink. Right. Ugh. All right. So the bird clears their name among the mob and you know, they find out that Cliff is behind the whole thing. And they have the final showdown here um on the quarry. Josh, why don't you lead us through this? The kids are kidnapped. Yeah. Um so <laughs> yeah okay so my one problem i'll just get it get it out right away is that they kidnap the kids and tie them on top of the quarry and i thought Chekhov's gun here was this whole thing has been set into motion by fred's adoption and helping them get bam bam and they got bam bam up there quote tied up like he's the strongest kid in america like Get going, brother. He's fucking Superman. Yeah, I thought he was just going to start, like, yodeling huge boulders off towards the bad guy, like, right away. <laughs> and that would have been a great payoff. But instead, um, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen and Bam Bam are stuck up there, uh, like, in one of those train carts. And the whole elaborate model they showed earlier in the film is, like, in action. And it's just basically a death machine. So, we got a ticking clock. And I don't know, like... What do you guys think about the act, quote action sequence here? <laughs> Pretty lackluster, I think. <laughs> the bird, because they're doing a like a prisoner exchange, the kids for the bird. Uh, the bird on his way to to Cliff looks at the camera and says, "I should have signed up with Disney." Oh yeah, they never would have let this happen. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of funny as like a reference to the animals in the cartoon show, but I don't think it like on its own it doesn't play that well. I think it's only funny as a reference to the cartoon, you know. There was one other animal that did that, and it was the the bird that uh, opened the bottles of soda. Yeah, he said, this job sucks. (laughs) It's kind of like an annoying part because it's kind of drawn out and long, but I weirdly liked it. And I'm trying to figure out why. And something that just pinged in my brain is that it really reminds me of, uh, we were talking about 90 shows earlier, but we were just talking about cartoons. But 
like Legends of the Hidden Temple or like guts. Oh. When they, they got like boulders <laughs> rolling and they got hammers swinging and they're running through this obstacle course thing. It's kind of, I don't know, it's, it is very much that stuff. Like I, a kid's got to come up and put together the shrine of the silver yeah. monkey, but you can't do it right. Like, <laughs> I think the set's cool, and the the mechanics, the working mechanics of it all were cool. It would, that was all nicely put together. But yeah, they didn't. I don't think they did enough with it. It ends up being kind of boring. Yeah. At one point, Cliff has a gun. Oh it's yeah, the first gun. It's a slingshot. It, yeah, it's like a slingshot gun. It's like <laughs> it's, it's like a semi-automatic slingshot with these little pebbles. <laughs> Which, like, he points at Fred, and, like, Fred's like, oh, no. He's, like, frozen. Like, come on. Just throw the Fred, boulder Fred out. Fred has a fine. rock that drops on his head every morning for his alarm clock. Right? And he's afraid of a little slingshot. Like, come on, bud. And he's holding a come boulder. On. Just throw the boulder at him. I don't know. I mean, as a parent, I enjoyed the scene because it showed, like, two dads who would do anything for their kids. I mean, you see Barney, like, jump in this catapult and get thrown, like, a thousand yards too far into the side of a cliff jumps down and gets the kids. Fred is doing his classic thing, which was just brute strength because we all know he's dumb as a bag of rocks. Yeah. Like, and he's trying to turn the switch off for the, the steam engine, you know, I don't know, man. It's kind of a wholesome scene, regardless of how dumb it really was. Like it just shows like two dads who really like want to take care of their kids. They're not trying to adhere like to physics take. or anything like the final blow is of course is Fred like bouldering, uh, like bowling balling a boulder and hitting the bad guy into concrete. Like that's amazing. Dude, John Goodman's arms were kind of yoked for this <laughs> movie, were, man. Like you could tell he was working out. So yeah, he does the bowling thing and then it trips Cliff and then he gets trapped under concrete. But real quick, speaking of him getting tripped, we see his feet. Could you guys believe how much fucking close-ups of feet we saw in this movie? It's like a goddamn Tarantino movie. There's <laughs> a bit of a, a little bit of foot fetishism in this film, yeah. Yeah, dude. We're seeing a lot of dirty close-up feet. I think that's just reference to the cartoon. The cartoon showed a lot of a lot of feet issues. I mean, dude, they didn't have it, it, they didn't have shoes. Like, uh, I think it's also an editing thing to hide the wires and show them floating for longer or something, but yeah, a lot of feet, a lot of Tarantino feet. <laughs> so uh, Cliff gets covered in concrete, which I guess is kind of around where this movie ends off because the boss man, Mr. Slate, finally shows up, who's Captain Cragen from Law and Order SVU. If you guys are fans of that. <laughs> I'm aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he shows up and he, he's like completely marveled by this concrete. And he says, oh, my God, this is going to change the world. And he's, the Stone Age is over. He's declared it. Like, the Stone Age is over. I mean, they're, they already got TVs and shit, so they're... I so, mean, it actually wasn't named Concrete yet. He named it after his daughter, Concretia. <laughs> That's right. He named it right then and there. Yeah. How did this happen? Well, Mr. Slate, it all started when the rubbles here wanted to adopt a baby. Not that! How did this happen to Cliff? Well, you see, Mr. Slate, the machinery went haywire and the rocks got all crushed up and that got mixed in with water and that came all down to hell. Mr. Slade, I'm sorry. Sorry? I love this stuff. I'm gonna name it after my daughter, Concretia. Flintstone, you're a genius. Me? Really? Why, 
Don't you see? Thanks to concrete, man can now shape his own destiny. The Stone Age is over. But it's supposed to be like a play on like an ancient Greek name and even ancient Greek civilization didn't exist yet at that point. So, whatever. <laughs> For more about concrete. Does the mythology hold up? <laughs> you can call the National Concrete Association based in Milwaukee. And uh, so what happens is the guy says, well, for this concrete invention, uh, I'm going to promote you, Flintstone. You're going to he's going to rise up the ranks again. But he says, no, I'm just going to be a working stiff. And they kind of they go back to square one, Barney and Fred and their families. It's another bad grown up move. Look, you realized that what you did before was wrong and you acted like an <laughs> asshole. So take the better job. Give your friend a ton of money and don't be a prick this time. No. Like, what's the what's the problem? Here's the thing, though, Steve. <laughs> Life lessons with Steve. No, right? Steve, we never change, though. That's the thing. You know that's true. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it is. He's just never going to change. It just seems to me like if you know you were a dick last time, maybe just don't be <laughs> one this time. I don't know. I think the lesson here is accept your fucking low-paying... Yeah, you know what? Job. Yeah, exactly. You were way better off being a low-paid schmoo. You'll have your ketchup packets and a marginal raise, and I'll keep all the millions of dollars you would have made off this concrete. That's better Go for back you. To sleep. It's better for everyone. Yeah, but all the all the guys on the quarry did get their two weeks of paid time off. Though. Oh, well, there's that. Thank God. Yeah. He negotiated a hard bargain there. Let me give up million dollars a year right. salary for two weeks of paid vacation and right. some fucking ketchup packets. Even if you're not a possession-oriented person, he could have given that money to his friends or paid to buy new bowling uniforms for everyone or bought Barty's house so he'd never be in danger of losing it again. There's all kinds of good things you can do with that money. like Buy a pterodactyl. Yeah, and let it shit on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird scene we forgot to touch on. Yeah. The European <laughs> Union offers like thrice that in vacation time anyways. It's not even that great of a deal, two weeks. Well, you know, I think maybe the European equivalent to their slate union was giving better better benefits. You know? Yeah. The, 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 the cavemen in France. I mean, Neanderthals are from France. After all, it's like homeland for them. So. Oh there's actually God. this one line dropped in the film where Fred says there's only 4,000 people or something like that. I really enjoyed that line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was funny. I like the little stuff like that in the movie. Like the Is the earth flat? Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Like, are you going to come with me, Fred? Is the earth flat? Right. <laughs> Well, he's he asking, Kyrie? <laughs> that stuff's relevant again, is all I'm saying. Oh, God, the world's sad. <laughs> the world is sad. <laughs> We're recording this podcast at a very sad time. I told you guys world. we never right? change. We never change. Oh, God. Well, we certainly never change. This podcast is not supposed to be this introspective. I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I'll give you a promotion that, All you, right. that you can promptly turn down. Right? No, no, no. I'm taking that promotion. <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting this. So. <laughs> right? It was an insincere offer. I'm sorry. <sighs> All right, guys. Do you have any final thoughts about the movie before ratings? So not stuff relevant to ratings, but any final thoughts? I think my final thoughts probably bundled into my writing. Uh, yeah. For more on concrete, uh, check out spoilers <laughs> episode 276, Lock. <laughs> oh yeah we talk a lot about concrete in that just episode. a guy that drives around and talks about concrete in the modern age it's got that c6 or whatever definitely not the c5 nope. okay <laughs> yeah that's that's some bullshit <laughs> all right so i have a question for you guys before we go into ratings who is the jesus character <laughs> in the flintstones movie i'm bringing it back because josh is here oh. And Josh, you got to go first. Oh, man. I think, uh, 
man. Poof. I think probably the bird. The bird was treated so poorly and still saves friend Fred for his sins. Um, I think if you would ask the bird, he would say, uh, can you mess up just once? And he's like, no, the number's more like seven times 77 or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. The bird's pretty nice. He, uh, he even sacrifices himself during that like handoff scene. He's trades himself for the kids. Um, I think, I think he's it. All right. Jonathan, who do you think the Jesus character is? I think it's just Wilma. Uh, you know, she she runs the household. She knew from the beginning that she would rather have the friends than all the material shit. She um, give us this day our daily bread, yeah, <laughs> our daily dino egg. You know, she uh, she's the one that chokes out the dick to bird to get him to talk. So I think that's you classic know, Jesus move. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you know, I I think she's the one that without her. There is no movie. There's no salvation of the friendship. There's no bailing Fred and Barney from getting hung. I think she's the savior of. of That's a pretty progressive viewpoint, but no, it's the bird dog. (laughs) All right, Steve, what's your bird? The bird only did it because he got choked (laughs) out, man. I'm thinking along similar lines as Josh, but my answer is going to be Barney. Barney sacrificed himself and his well-being to benefit his friend Fred and um, had to suffer for Fred's sins, losing his job and almost losing his house, and then is almost hung slash crucified for it, and then eventually um, Mm -hmm. uh, is redeemed. uh, Or I guess Jesus isn't technically the one who gets redeemed, but you know what I mean. I right. fell apart there at the end, but okay. Well, okay. <laughs> was, yeah, strong start. <laughs> he helps redeem his friend. <laughs> so, the correct answer is you are all wrong <laughs> because it's BC. It's before Christ. There is no oh. Jesus character. Oh, hey, well, or you know, you're all right. Well, wait a Whatever second. Whatever way you though. want to take it. Uh, uh, AD doesn't start until after he's dead. So even Christ is is BC. Yeah. So there there was no Jesus character when there was an actual Jesus. Yeah. Exactly. Well, as yeah. we it wasn't until know, later. as we saw with the Zoolander joke, everyone had to be based on someone. So right. I think Jesus was clearly based on the bird, though. It's my point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great viewpoint. Ugh. If the bird was really Jesus, he wouldn't be such an asshole in the beginning anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do ratings. Jonathan, what's your rating of the Flintstones on any rating scale you want? Uh, okay, let's do like a let's do a 10 scale. Um, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. I really like this movie. It, it's funny. It's got a great cast. Uh, I mean... There's so many big names in there. John Goodman, uh, Rick Moranis, Halle Berry, Rosie O'Donnell, Elizabeth Perkins, Kyle McLaughlin, Elizabeth Taylor, Harvey Corman. Uh, I mean, how do you get that many stars into a stupid movie <laughs> like this? But it's a stupid movie that I really enjoy. Uh, I, I'll watch it again and again and again. I like the movie. Hands down. All right. Fair enough. Josh, what do you got <sighs> on any rating scale? Any you rating want. scale I want. Um, this is kind of magical watching this today because it's been since the first time I watched it, like one or two years after it came out, that I've seen it. I haven't like re-upped on the cartoons really, so that's just like a fleeting childhood memory 
So like having a lot of that stuff come back to me and diving into the lore a little bit this afternoon was really cool. I was going to give it like 9 out of 10 pins, but I was like, that's a ridiculous rating. Like 9 out of 10, I'd be like strung up on film Twitter for something like that. Um, and I can't call it like a perfect movie, so it's not a strike. So I'll give it like a spare, I guess. You're going to be really happy with a spare at the bowling alley. It's great. Um, you're going to have a lot of fun with this movie, too. I I just think like seeing Rick Moranis without glasses a is pretty much a spare in itself but <laughs> yeah it just works on a lot of levels it's clearly not meant to be taken seriously the physics and like the mixture between like are they really living in prehistoric society versus now and like how do you break a 20 i don't know i just thought all those moments were <laughs> freaking awesome and made me laugh because it's so transparently yeah. just campy um really fun movie when i was 10 i thought this movie looked stupid and not cool and now as a 35 year old I'm like this is I wish more movies were like this actually and the set <laughs> design is so intricate and awesome like huge huge one up nice alright thank you Josh I'm gonna go next I'm gonna give this a 4 out of 10 uh, dirty feet close ups <laughs> I like the way this movie looks but I think where it falls apart is that uh is that script that 31 people wrote. Um, <laughs> so the story itself is uh, is like, it's nothing to next to nothing. Like, it, there's not a whole lot to it. Like, who really cares? It's like not very Flintstones-y. Not that the Flintstones was great in the first place. But the way this movie looks is pretty cool. And that's pretty much all mm -hmm. I'm giving those four out of 10 to. Like the costumes, the sets, everything they built, all the money they spent, I mean, I'm kind of surprised now. I heard the budget was 45 million. They did a lot with that money, I think, because everything, almost everything you see is real, right? These props, yeah. these animatronics. There's some CG, but for the most part, all this stuff is real, and that's that's quite amazing. This movie made a fuck ton of money, by the way. It made 341 million worldwide. So that's a home run. For that's sure. how they uh, got that Viva Rock Vegas green lit. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like Dumb and Dumber in that regard, like. You just remember the humor and the gags and the acting from the two and like that weird plot about like someone money la money laundering and they're kind of sleazy. It's very forgettable and cheesy and crappy, but I guess Corey as a 90s dude, those are both 90s movies. Why is that something that it fell into? Do you think? Why does it have to do that? I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm the wrong it can't guy. It stop itself. <laughs> Considering how many of these movies from the early and mid-90s were set up to be the starting point for a franchise, and how many of them ended up not becoming the starting point for the franchise because they bombed, it's kind of amazing to me that this movie did so tremendously well, and it took them, I think, well more than a decade to do a sequel, and the sequel mm -hmm. didn't have the original cast in it. So I, yeah, I would have figured yeah. if any of them were going to spawn a sequel, I'm glad it didn't, it probably wouldn't have been good, but if any of them were going to spawn a sequel, I would have thought it was this one. The Brady Bunch movie did well, it got one. The Adams Family movie did well, it got one. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know what, real quick, I, I didn't really have an opportunity to bring this up during the review, but the marketing for this movie was insane. It was. This movie was fucking mm -hmm. everywhere when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. And I was super hyped for it. They there brought was... the McRib back for this. <laughs> the McRib. One of the many times it was brought back, but yeah. I'm pretty sure there were McDonald's toys, but yes. the thing I remember the most, which we had, 
were the glass mugs. Oh yeah, the clear glass mugs. Like you, Jonathan, I for you sure had some of those Flintstone ones from McDonald's. You know, I know you, you still buy, have your Batman one. I still have the Batman one. I sent Corey a picture of that after yeah. the last pod. It's so. weird because I meant to mention this early in the pod, but I tallied up. I was actually keeping note on this, like seven or eight sexual references. And then when the whole thing with like Sharon Stone came into the office, I just like threw that list out the window and it's like, yeah, like, okay, uh, like how did this, it's PG and it's so like indoctrinated and I don't know. It's pretty telling of how the culture is different. I think it's very sexual. Yeah. It's like Steve always says, kids could take it yeah. at the time. Like it was yeah. a different time. Well, nobody was thinking about it in this context. I mean, right or wrong. And frankly, I think we've gone a little too far the opposite direction at this point, but, um, yeah, really, I mean, nobody thought about it like that. It wasn't looked as being looked at as being offensive or inappropriate. It wasn't questionable. Nobody used the word issues to refer to anything in this movie. This thing has issues. Everything's got a fucking issue now. You problematic. Say, problematic, yeah. This movie's problem. I'm sure today's people would pick out a dozen things about it that are problematic. Halle Berry's character's premise is like, I'm a secretary who will do whatever you want. Like, that is right? pretty bad. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, Us yeah, as I 90s guess, kids, man, we, we just weren't pussies, you know? We didn't need safe places. We built ramps in streets and, and jumped our bikes off of stupid shit with no helmets and knee pads. And you fell down and you got up and you did it again. You, absolutely. But, I mean, and also some, so much of this concern is driven by adults who seem to have forgotten. The kids don't get that in the first place. I didn't get it. Yeah. When I was 11 when True. this movie came out, the sexuality of Sharon Stone meant nothing to me. Like, I wasn't – even at 11, I'm – that was within a year of me getting real interested in girls. Like, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, man, boner time. You know, <laughs> I'm going to sit here and, and, you know, jerk off this movie. Like, you're just like, okay, she's a sexy secretary. No, I'm going to wait like, till Swordfish comes out. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, but yeah, then you've you got people in their boobies. 40s and 50s sitting around going, oh, this is problematic. It's bad for the kid. didn't fucking get it. Just shut up. Like. Mm. And with that rant, Steve, what's your name? <laughs> right? <laughs> um. I was expecting you to be slightly more generous, Corey. I'm actually going to give this one... I'm going to give this one a 7 out of 10, which is about a half a point more than I thought I was going to give it originally. I actually went into rewatching this movie thinking I was going to despise every second of it and give it like a 2. But, um, you know, what? considering how good the sets and the costuming were, considering how well they pulled off the physical creatures and even the CG uh, as an, on the basis of it being 94... And bearing in mind, this is based on a kid's cartoon from the 60s. The overall delivery of it was impressively good. Even the acting was mostly good. Um, where it falls short for me, it's basically what, what at least a couple of you guys already addressed, is that the they sort of miss the mark with the actual story. It's, it's thin on actual story, and what is there is really a bit much for something. That's the part where I'm like... I think that might be a little much for a kid's movie, not because I'm worried about the kids being damaged by it, but just because I certainly didn't get as an 11-year-old that basically these people wanted to use Fred as a dupe for embezzlement. I, it was just like, I was just sitting around waiting for the next goofy thing to happen, <laughs> the next dinosaur to appear, you know? The next rock that falls on Fred's head. Yeah, exactly. Was, that storyline was probably really just perspective to make sure that parents and kids both saw this with a PG rating. Most yeah. parents were going to be like, ah, I don't really give a shit about this movie. You know, let the kids go. But there was enough there for a parent to watch Ooh, if they were forced Corporate to intrigue. Right? Count I, me in. Right? <laughs> no, and I agree with Jonathan for the most part. I think the corporate intrigue thing is a little much 
but I, I when I said at the beginning of the, the review, like, I really do feel that this movie was made at least as much for parents who were in their 40s and 50s when this came out and who'd watched the cartoon in the 60s as it was for the kids. I think they do that with a lot of these movies, and it probably was partly a ploy to say, hey, don't you remember watching this 35 years ago? Why don't you come in and see a movie version of it? But that's where you get that difficulty I was trying to address early on, where it's like, you, either way you lose you make the movie too much for for people who were fans 30 years ago and all of a sudden it's not enough for the kids anymore but the flip side of that is you make it for today's kids and the adults of 35 years ago or that who were the kids of 35 years ago aren't interested and i think that makes making a movie like this kind of difficult because you still need the parents to be willing to take their kids to see it um i think also think it's one of the brilliant things about the muppet movies is that generally speaking even as a 37-year-old, I can sit through those and go, this movie's fucking hilarious. And the Muppet State Manhattan is great. Um, but yeah, for me, for me, I'll go 7 out of 10. Not perfect, definitely flawed, problems with the plot. But uh, I, I think they did about as much with this as they realistically could have. Damn, well said, Steve. <laughs> the numbers on it don't lie. I mean, would you say they made $365 million on it? 341, but yes, yeah. a fuck ton. Yeah, that's a lot of Suffice fucking money for a that marketing movie. paid off, right? Yeah, that stuff about embezzlement reminds me of like what George did with the prequels too, like also a '90s <gasps> thing. Like uh, episode get one Steve is about going. a trade dispute. <laughs> don't yeah, don't get me started. Oh, I need to shut up. Josh, what have you done? <laughs> right? <laughs> fucking Jar Jar. All right, you know, stop. Sorry. Oh, it's been a fun episode. Thank you guys so much for joining us, Steve, Jonathan, and Josh. Thank you. I had a fun time. You did. Josh, where can people find more of you? Ooh, if they would ever choose to do such a thing. You can go to spoilers <laughs> with an exclamation point podcast. Our Instagram is podcast spoilers. It's, it's lit. lit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, listen to Josh and me over at Spoilers where we talk about other What's movies. What's the last one we were in together? Antichrist? No, you weren't in that? Fast and Furious 6? Yeah, it's coming out soon. Yes. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. If you want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please give the YouTube a thumbs up. I've been getting very disheartened by the amount of thumbs down we get. <laughs> As Josh can see on my Facebook. Um, write in, email us. What else we got? Uh, leave us a positive rating, please, on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars because we are the best podcast around. And we thank you for that. Any final words, guys? You guys better like me. <laughs> I'm speaking only for myself. Like no. Steve. Right? Give Steve a like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we had fun. We have fun here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can catch us next time. We love you. 